Look, it's going to be a Lord of the Rings-a-thon today. So I hope you're okay with that. I actually was going to show three clips today from the Lord of the Rings, but uh, I've, I've pared it down to two. They're both from uh, the third installment, The Return of the King. And uh, I'd like to open with this clip. This is the clip uh, right at the start of the movie, which uh, documents the transition of uh, Smeagol to Gollum in the movie. Uh, now, I could explain lots about Lord of the Rings to you now, but you'll get the point uh, of why I'm actually playing the clip by watching it, so I won't go into that if you haven't. Anyone not seen Lord of the Rings? Jeez, and you're still alive. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Why? Thank <laughs> you. 
and we wrapped precious. We wrapped with sorrow. It's an amazing short tale over about four and a half minutes of uh, the effect. Do you notice how it all started? Is, uh, it, was about, it, it was about self. It was about Schmeagel. Schmeagel wanted something and he wanted it for him and he didn't want someone else to have it. And when he actually got the thing that he wanted at the expense of someone else's life, that thing started to rule him and enslave him. Did you notice that? And he ended up in a kingdom, a tiny, tiny kingdom of the self. That's what he ended up in, and he became a completely different person. Jesus has come to bring his rule and to bring his kingdom. That's why he's come. We, uh, we're not really that used to um, the notion of, of uh, the old school kind of kingdom. The, uh, the kind of kingdom that we think of is the one that we've got as uh, part of the Commonwealth with Britain. It's a constitutional monarchy. It's, um, they don't really have any say in our lives. And people think, well, we might as well just, let's just rule ourselves. And that, that's kind of the Republican argument is, oh, let's be a republic because they don't really have any real effect. Um, but up until about the 19th century, monarchies were actually the most common form of government. We're on a little bit of a blip in terms of the uh, historical radar regarding um, democracy. Um, under... A, a, a typical monarchy that um, has been seen across the, the whole of history, um, the, uh, the monarchy kind of decides everything. The king or the queen decides everything. Um, there are some countries in the world that have an, an absolute monarchy, and one of them is Saudi Arabia. Um, and the interesting thing is you can, you can talk about how that works, and most probably Australians are pretty sceptical of monarchies and kingdoms, um, where one person has a whole lot of rule because uh, the word that often gets associated with that is an autocrat. Um, we don't really know what it's like um, to be part of a kingdom where the, uh, the monarchy is, is really the ones who are in charge. And I think combined with that is the whole notion, I, I don't think Australians actually like authority too much. I mean, I think sometimes our convict stock, it's like... We instinctively think authority's bad, even when it's a good person. Uh, we, we probably made a bit of a name for ourselves as convicts. Uh, and I think whenever you call Australians to rebel against authority, you always get a hearing. Because it, it's kind of part of who Australia is as a nation. And, I mean, it even plays into... Um, I mean, what's, what, what are the great, the great uh, stories of the Australian culture are uh, when... Uh, a very, very tiny Australian Defence Force unit is able to stand up against some massive big uh, army that's against them. So you've got the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam where a small group of Australians are able to stand up against a, a big group of the enemy. Now, part of that is Australians love a story where someone small beats someone big. But I think sometimes interwoven into someone small beating someone big is that whole rebellion against authority. Uh, we just like it when someone who should have the power and the authority kind of loses it um, or gets beaten in it. Um, so to some degree, it becomes difficult for us to understand this whole notion, and it can rub Australians up the wrong, wrong way, this whole notion that Jesus is actually coming to bring his rule. Here we go. So if you've got your Bibles there, I'd like to read Mark chapter 1 and read through the scriptures that we're going to be looking at today. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. 
Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them. It's like Mark's favourite word, immediately. I don't know if anyone's noticed that. Everything's immediately. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, there you go again, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That was, uh, I mean, historians tell us that that was a technique that the evil spirit and that other people used to try and get authority over other people. Um, The technique was basically if you knew the person's name, the correct name and the precise name, and you used it against them, you'd actually get authority over them. So one of the things that's probably happening here is this evil spirit is trying to work out a way that he can get some authority over Jesus. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So today I want to suggest to you that this passage actually teaches you about the kingly rule of Jesus. It teaches you about the reach of his rule and it teaches you about the effects of his rule. Here's the first one, the kingly rule of Jesus. Now after John was arrested, this is Mark 1, 14 to 15, I just read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you might ask at this point in time, isn't God king of everything? And you could quote me scriptures in the Bible. But there's a sense in which what Jesus is saying is, yes, God's king of everything, but there's a kind of effective rule that's still coming about. And he's saying, I'm coming and I'm actually going to start that. And it's going to be complete when Jesus comes back in the new heavens and the new earth. So in an ultimate sense, God is the king and this is his kingdom. But what we actually find is there's a rebellion going on in God's kingdom. Let me give you a definition of treason. Treason is the crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill or overthrow the sovereign or the government. I mean, that that actually happened to Jesus. You see, God made everything. It was all his kingdom. And there's been this rebellion going on in his kingdom. Jesus comes along and people seize their chance. We can overthrow the sovereign of this kingdom. But Jesus doesn't get beaten by that. It actually becomes part of his mission, and the mission keeps going. Now, some people might ask, well, isn't the world God's kingdom? And someone might say, well, if you look at the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, the devil promises to give Jesus his kingdom, the kingdoms of the world. And uh, this is an interesting question. Has anyone ever asked, what's going on there? Like, how can the devil give that if it all kind of belongs to God? And uh, I remember having thinking uh, for quite a period of time, about the fall of the devil so the devil's an angel that wanted to make it about him um, instead of it being about god and i think at the end of the day this is kind of my thing i i feel a bit weird i was talking to a fellow this week who's uh he doesn't follow jesus about devil about demons and and the devil and you kind of feel a bit weird talking about it because people kind of don't believe in that stuff as much but at the end of the day look if god can create the world He can create whatever he wants. Anyone with me on that? And so he just decided he's going to create some angels. And obviously he gave these angels free will. And the angels, a third of them, decided they just didn't want to do God's thing anymore. They wanted to do their own thing. And that's how we get uh, the devil and demons. And so this question's arisen in my mind uh, lots of the times. Like, what's the devil doing in the Garden of Eden? Anyone ever ask that? That's weird. 
Uh, why is the devil kind of saying um, that he's going to give Jesus his kingdom if he bows down to him? It's just a whole bunch of things, just kind of a few notches up on the weird scale. And uh, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't really tell you, but I'll give you one theory, uh, one theological theory. And it helps a little bit. It makes sense of most things that I've heard of, but I, we don't really know. Here's the theory. The theory is that the devil had some kind of rulership role as a, as a perfect angel when the world was created and that the devil's fall actually happened in the Garden of Eden, almost simultaneously with uh, the fall of humanity. Um, the person that explained this, I mean, the way that helps me is I think, well, that kind of explains a little bit why the devil's in there. It might explain a little bit why the devil's got some kind of authority over the kingdoms of the world. Um, I mean, the counterpoint question is, okay, God knows the future and he knew the devil was going to do that, so why did he do it? And if you know the answer to that, I'd like to hear it. So it helps, but it doesn't always help. But the big point here is that God is king of this world, but there's a sense in which he's not, there's, there's not a fullness of his kingship and his ruling in this world because of the rebellion that's going on. And there's a tension between what's true about God and what's true in practice. Um, and there's a sense, the commentators talk about this, they talk about the fact that God's kingship and his rule is obscured and hidden, and in Christ it starts to become more and more visible and more and more manifest. And what you actually have, these are the first words, if you look on the screen, these are the first words that Mark says in his gospel. These are the most important first words that he, he's saying that Jesus actually said. And they're words saying that Jesus is bringing and he's inaugurating a kingdom. He's making God's kingdom more visible. And he wants you to know that that's good news, right? Because if you have a look at that scripture out there, it says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So for a country that's come from convicts, by and large, that don't like authority, Mark wants you to know, look, Jesus has come and he's doing something really amazing and it's really good news. You actually want it. I remember uh, an institution I knew of, you remember... A number of years ago, the whole thing came in about enterprise bargaining agreements and you've got to have a group of people that negotiate with the, the, the bosses of uh, institutions in terms of wages. Everyone know what I'm talking about? And uh, I heard of one institution uh, a little while ago that didn't want to move into uh, an enterprise bargaining agreement situation because they, they can be pretty messy. And you know what this institution did? It looked after its people. And at the end of the day, pretty much no one asked for an EBA system to be set up. And, you know, this is the kind of rule that Jesus actually wants to bring. He wants to bring a rule where you're not going to want to have a committee to talk to God about what he's up to. You're just going to go, this is actually really good. I mean, to have someone in power, ruling, in authority, who doesn't ever get anything wrong and always cares and always loves the people that he's ruling, that is like the perfect outcome. Now, you might really like Tony Abbott, all right, or you may not. It doesn't matter. The best prime minister that Australia's had doesn't even come close to what it would be like for Jesus. He doesn't need a subcommittee. He doesn't need a parliamentary committee. He doesn't need to have a referendum. Everything that he does is good. It's good for you. It's good for him. It's good for everyone. He's worked out how to do that. He knows about how to do that, and you can trust him. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, when uh, humanity decided they wanted to rule, God's kingdom has been coming again in its fullness, piece by piece by piece. And when Jesus comes in, he says, I've got good news for you. There's more of his rule coming. And we ought to, and I think probably because of some of those things that I've mentioned, we ought to be people who welcome a good ruler to come and rule us and look after us and care for us. God's kingdom is wherever God is king. And so what needs to happen for God's kingdom to come? Have a look at the scripture up there on the screen. People need to repent. You see, sedition in law, sedition is overt conduct such as speech, organisation that is deemed by the legal authority to tend toward insurrection against the established order. That's what sedition is. We're seditious. 
by nature. We work against God's established order. And you know what we actually do? We actually set up alternate kingdoms. That's what we do. We're a bit like Schmeagel. I don't want to live in something else. I want it to be about me. But did you notice Schmeagel's world? The more he made it about him, the smaller his world got. And he got stuck in it. And I hope that you can see that. Maybe uh, you might need some help from someone else to see it in your own life. But do you know that's exactly how it works? You remember last week we came straight out of the fact that the Trinity is expressed in the baptism of Jesus and they're all completely selfless. And the next thing on the agenda is to call people out of the kingdom of self into Jesus' kingdom. This is what he's doing. Come and join my team. Don't be on your own team. The next clip is... Uh, at uh, the city of Ministereth. Ministereth is uh, where the real king, Aragorn, out of uh, the Lord of the Rings, is actually going to come and reign. But there's a guy sitting on the throne who's a steward of the throne only, and he doesn't want to get off. He's not the king. He's not meant to be the king. And this is at a time where uh, Ministereth is actually going to come under some really significant attack. There's some forces actually coming against um, the, the city. And... Uh, Gandalf, the, uh, the, magician, the magician, he's a magician, wizard, thank you, wrong word, there you go, magician, he can pull a rabbit out of a hat, a wizard, can't believe it, there you go, obviously clearly that's an area where my preparation was a little bit weak. Um, Gandalf the white wizard comes and he's basically saying, listen man, you're the steward, you've got to round up everyone you can for this battle because there's, there's a big conflict happening uh, and there's a really interesting... Yes, the white tree of Gondor, the tree of the king. Lord Denethor, however, is not the king. He is a steward only, a caretaker of the throne. Listen carefully. Lord Denethor is Boromir's father. To give him news of his beloved son's death would be most unwise. I do not mention further. And say nothing about Aragorn either. In fact, it's better if you don't speak at all about him too. Denethor, son of Exelion, lord and steward of Gondor. I come with tidings in this dark hour, and with counsel. Perhaps you come to explain this. Perhaps you come to tell me why my son is dead. died to save us, my kinsmen and me. He fell defending us from many foes. I offer you my service, such as it is, in payment of this debt. Get up. My lord, there will be a time to grieve for Boromir, but it is not now. War is coming. The enemy is on your doorstep. As steward, you're charged with the defense of this city. Where are Gondor's armies? You still have friends. You are not alone in this fight. Send word to Theoden of Rohan. Light the beacons. You think you are wise, Mithrandir. Yet for all your subtleties, you have not wisdom. Do you think the eyes of the White Tower are blind? I have seen more than you know. 
With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor. And with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh, yes. Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north. Last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship. Authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. The rule of Gondor is mine, and no others. It's pretty insightful, I think. Um, he didn't want to get off. He wasn't meant to be the king, but he didn't want to get off. And Jesus would actually come to us in Australia, and he would say this morning, a key thing that you need to realise is that you're wrong. You're wrong. See, that's what repentance, that's one thing that repentance means. It means you're going the wrong way. And you don't have the right to be the king and to sit on the throne and set up an alternative kingdom. You see, this is a, um, a pretty challenging thing in the Australian context because the philosophy that, uh, that rules the day the most is postmodernism, where there's no absolute right or wrong. Well, Jesus would come to Australia if he was in flesh and he would come and he'd stand up and he'd say that everyone's wrong. He's not following him. You need to repent. And the really cool thing about this is when he tells you that you need to repent, that's actually good news. Do you notice that? Because he says this is the good news in that scripture from Mark 1. The good news of the gospel is that you need to repent and believe it. Now, how is repentance good news? Well, repentance is to turn back, to change direction, to change your mind. You know what a really nice way to uh, think about repentance is? Is it's a change of heart. You tell me how easy it is to change, to have a change of heart. It's actually pretty hard. You see, we can change behaviour, but the behaviour doesn't change the heart. And sometimes change of behaviour can influence the heart and change it a little bit. But I'll tell you what, change of heart always results in changed behaviour. It's a classic thing at home when you say to your kids, say sorry. Sorry. <laughs> say it like you mean it. Sorry. There's no change of heart. It's difficult to get a change of heart. What Jesus is saying is good news. It's not actually advice. It's good news. To repent is good news. I remember uh, talking to a lady who just converted from uh, being an Anglican to being a Buddhist. And uh, I, I asked her, I, I, I asked her about Nirvana. Now, Nirvana's. I'm going to do violence to it, but in the, in the Buddhist kind of system, nirvana is basically where you get to a point where you don't want anything or you don't have any desires for anything anymore. And it's kind of like the heaven state almost. And I asked her, I said, um, how many people in Buddhism actually get to that point? And she goes, oh, hardly any. I'm just going, well, that's like anti-gospel right there, isn't it? It's like there's a whole bunch of stuff about Buddhism that's, it might be good advice, but have you ever noticed with good advice, if you don't follow it, you feel really bad and you feel like a loser? They can give you all the evidence and they can tell you all the stories about people who followed the advice and what they've gotten to, but if you don't actually get there, it's not good news for you. So the gospel is about the difference between do and done. See, the difference between Jesus and religion is the difference between do and done. I guarantee you pretty much every religion... And even when people are religious about their Christianity, you can see this difference in them. Here's how it works. When you're a Christian and you trust in Jesus, everything is already done for you. You don't have to do anything to qualify. The only thing you need to do is have a change of heart and turn from what you were doing. With religion, what do you need to do? Well, you need to qualify. You need to do lots of stuff. Your record's got to be good enough. You've got to work at it over the long term. You see, the reason why repentance in Christianity is good news is because you don't have to do anything to end up in a good place. You've only got to turn from what you were doing. You see, the core of the gospel is the admission that you've been going the wrong way, that you need to reverse course and that you need a change of heart. This is good news. Everyone can do it. And the key, Jesus says, is to turn. You can actually get into his kingdom and have a good, 
full life and be the person that God originally made you to be without actually having to do anything. He will do all of the work for you. Point number two, the reach of his rule. We'll start with people. Notice this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You know what Jesus does? He's going to push into your personal space. And he's going to do it all the time. So you imagine Jesus is here, he's walking along the beach, he sees some guys and he starts pushing his rule into their personal space. And I just want to give you a bit of a heads up. That he's just, that's what he's always on about. If you don't know Jesus, that's what he's on about. He wants to extend his rule into your life. And I'll tell you something, it's because his rule is better than yours. And we like to be private. We like to conceal things. But God's kingdom is a pushy kingdom and its rule is a pushy rule. Now, it's not a disrespectful rule. It's a good rule. It's a benevolent rule. He knows it's going to be best for you if he pushes right into your life. He gets in your face from the outset. And I think that's part of the reason why Mark keeps using the word immediately because you've always got to do something with Jesus. He's teeing Jesus up, so you've got to do something with him. You can't be a spectator. The grand plan of the ages is coming about through Jesus and you better work out what you're going to do with it. And what we actually notice from this little story is who's doing all the initiating? Jesus. You can't come to Jesus unless he calls you. You see, this is the way it works. You read scripture after scripture. We love him because what? He first loved us. He's the initiator. Jesus embodies a divine initiative and the fishermen embody an appropriate response to the divine initiative. What do they do? We're done with it. We're done with fishing. You see, Jesus is pushing into the kingdom of the self with these fishermen and the kingdom that they were part of. And what you notice, if we go back to uh, what I shared a little bit last week about the Trinity, is it's a real battle for us. I think one of the biggest kingdoms that people set up is the kingdom of themselves. But have you ever noticed that nothing makes you more miserable than self-absorption? Has anyone ever noticed that? Asking those questions of yourself all the time, how am I feeling, how am I doing? What are people thinking of me? How are people treating me? Am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? You see, war, class, struggle, relational breakdown, family breakdown, you know what most of that stuff is? It's the kingdom of the self. Because we want to be our own king or queen. And so when we become our own king or queen, you know what happens? Things start to fall apart. We fall apart um, physically, socially, spiritually. We fall apart psychologically. And just a bit of a hint. I was thinking about this and I just think, you know, one way that you can tell that you're living in the kingdom of self the most is that you complain a lot. And you don't even have to say that out loud. Like, just think about the talk that goes through your head. How much do you actually complain about everyone else around you and the situations around you? If you complain a lot in your head and some of that comes out of your mouth, there's a good chance you're living in the kingdom of the self. But do you know what the, the, really, the, the hope in that is? is that in every story, there's a king or there's a hero that's actually going to come and break into that kingdom and call someone into another kingdom. I mean, what happens with Sleeping Beauty? Sleeping Beauty, the prince comes and kisses her and wakes her out of her trance. But the demand, this prince that comes in Jesus, places some very high demands on people's priority of him. And he challenges the kingdom of self very, very strongly. Luke 14, verse 26. I read this slowly. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Who's the boss? The only way that Jesus will have it roll is if he's the boss. He will come to serve you, but he will not be your servant to do as you please. Jesus will not be a means to an end. And you might go, well, hang on, doesn't Jesus actually say that we need to love people and we need to love our family? Yes, he does. So what's he saying? Well, you know, Tim Keller says, Jesus is not saying that you need to hate your family actively. He says you need to hate your family comparatively. What he's saying is compared to Jesus, your love for Jesus it's going to look like hate to everyone else. Jesus wants you to follow him so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. And so we say things like this. We say, I'll obey Jesus if my career goes well, if my health is good, if my family stays together. But you know what? Whatever... Jesus gets you if that's the reason why you stay with Jesus that's the thing that you really want so what does your life look like is it that stark and let me have a brief little well I'm being a tad controversial let me have a brief little swing at something it kind of spins me out sometimes and I think as a growing momentum in this direction about what people think Sunday's for somehow Sunday's ended up becoming I hear lots of people saying oh I've got things on and I'll kind of fit church in if I've got the time for it or maybe there's something else you can go to you can go to church the church has got something else on you go oh that won't quite fit so I'm going to do my other thing and I'm just telling you it just sounds weird to me when people say that and it's just kind of upside down yeah, am I kind of saying, being, you know, I'm not wanting to go and get all kind of legalistic about it and say that you've got to come to church, but Sunday better look like it's not just about your rest, but it's about being dedicated to God. It always used to be. And somehow when it, people, you know, cried foul and kind of said, oh, look, it's gotten all legalistic, so we kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a really classic, uh, in, I think it's Isaiah 58, one of the lines that God says about his people on the Sabbath, he goes, if you will not just go around and do as you please on the Sabbath. And his criti- criticism of the people is that they were going around just doing whatever they wanted to do and they weren't even really paying attention to God that much. Now the Sabbath was a Saturday and we can go into all the details about the theology of why we worship on Sundays. But all of that just to say, I would just encourage you to re- rethink it. I think if there was ever going to be a day that Jesus gets priority and you prioritise his stuff. You don't just go around doing all the odd, odd jobs that you want to do. Is this something that I need to look at? Yeah, it is. But somehow in it, we've lost a little bit of what Sunday's meant to be about. It's not only meant to be about your rest. And I might even suggest to you that it's not even mostly meant to be about your rest. I would think if you read the scriptures, it's a bit meant to be about your rest in God. And he, you've got to actually see some priority that actually gets given there. The point here is that when Jesus comes along and he calls someone, he, the, the boys drop their nets, they leave their family, and it looks like they hate their family. That's the kind of follower that Jesus is looking, like, is looking for. And I'd ask you today, is that what it looks like for you? If you were to ask six people around you, your next-door neighbour, your, your workmates, if you said to them, does it look like I hate my family and my wife because of how much I love Jesus? You'd get some interesting answers probably. But Jesus is in your face and he's saying, listen, you can't have me unless it's that much. So Jesus' rule reaches to us personally. It reaches to people and it pushes in upon us. Jesus' rule also reaches into the spiritual realm. And if, uh, I'm just going to put some stuff up, so if you've got kids that can understand what I'm saying, you might want to just take them outside. Look, I don't know what you think about this. I mean, you've got churches that never talk about the devil, and then other churches where apparently everything's the devil's fault. Uh, One of the most theological books in the Bible is Romans, and the devil doesn't even get a mention until chapter 13, all right? 
And I'm on the record for saying, I can completely wreck my own life without the devil ever needing to help me. All right? So uh, one of my lines has been, I think Christians give the devil a bad reputation because they say that he's doing stuff a lot of the time. I don't think he's doing. But here's the reality. He does do stuff. Now, you might go, this is weird. Well, let me give you some news articles. Back in 2010, a bunch of Satanists got together and killed some people and ate them. All right? I was even going to put an article up about two or three weeks ago. There was an article about... Um, a guy in America who was a Satanist who actually cannibalised someone in the States. Uh, a court in Russia has handed six young Satanist sentences of up to 20 years for killing and dismembering four teenagers in a forest. Look, this stuff comes up, it pops up reasonably regularly. Here's one, uh, a courier mail from the 17th of the 11th, 1998, um, a lady and a compatriot, her name was Sarah Bird, she went into the Noosa State Forest and stabbed an old lady to death that she'd never even met before. The really interesting thing about it is that she was a Satanist. A teenage girl charged with attempting to murder a New Zealand tourist in the Noosa National Park told police it was her dream to kill someone. Um, Sarah Fatini Bird, 17, of Melbourne, but formerly of Noosa, told police in a videotaped interview, played to the court that it was not... Sorry, that it was always my dream to kill someone, not one, but quite a few. And note over here, uh, maybe you can't note it, second bottom paragraph on the right, both also talked of being followers of Satanism. This one's an interesting one. Uh, back in 2004, there was a sailor, a, um, a British naval uh, officer, uh, actually I don't even know whether they were an officer, but uh, someone in the British Navy, um, who actually appealed to... Um, the Navy to have permission to uh, do his satanic rituals on board one of the boats, right? Now, I'm not going out in that boat if, if I'm anyone else, all right? But the, the uh, British Navy uh, gave approval for him to do that. And uh, the Sydney Morning Herald article on the right-hand side there makes some interesting comments about Satanism and its particular um, effects. He's also revealed that he'll be lobbying to have Old Nick's worship recognised as a religion by the state. Now that he's given over his life to the worship of the principle of evil, which, as the Church of Satan's official website proclaims, is an acceptance of man's true state, that of a carnal beast living in a cosmos permeated and motivated by the dark force we call Satan. His mother, Catherine, supposedly a practising Christian, seems unmoved. He's not evil. In our home, we have angels on the mantelpiece, she says. Woohoo! It sounds like, yeah, she probably does, but they're not the ones that she thinks. Uh, it sounds like something out of a dodgy parody in the words of French poet Charles... How do you say that? Thank you, Baudelaire. The best trick the devil ever pulled is to persuade us that he didn't exist. Um, that would seem to be the case since basic disbelief in the idea that there could be an, such an entity is surely behind the Navy's acceptance of Cranmer's belief as harmless. Well, are they? Trawling through the Church of Satan's website, note this, and its related links, one comes across such statements such as let our governments be toppled, let the strong become masters and the weak be swept away as they should and kill all the deluded and weak. The Church of Satan breezily informs us that though supposedly it venerates the dark force, in fact, we are our own gods, people. You see? Now, I've taught um, for lots of years in the school here a uh, Christian studies unit on the occult. And it's just, there's too much going on to say, no, it's all bollocks. All right? It's just not true. And uh, it kind of freaks kids out a little bit. And I've done... I, I don't like it. I don't actually like doing the research. This week I read a bunch of stuff. You can get the Satanic Bible on Kindle if you want. It was written by this guy. He's a charming fella, uh, Anton LaVey. I remember having a, um, a nightmare about Anton LaVey when I was a really young kid. Uh, Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible in 1969. Um, and you know, let me, I just need to read you a quick quote. Anton LaVey began the road to high priesthood of the Church of Satan when he was only 16 years old. Listen to this, folks. If this, it's never nice to be rebuked. It's even less nice to be rebuked by a Satanist, all right? <laughs> he was an organ player at 16 years old at a carnival. He says this, On Saturday night, I would see men lusting after half-naked girls dancing at the carnival and on Sunday morning when I was playing the organ for tent show evangelists at the other end of the carnival lot, 
I would see these same men sitting in the pews with their wives and children asking God to forgive them and purge them of their carnal desires. And the next Saturday night, they'd be back at the carnival or some other place of indulgence. I knew then that the Christian church thrives on hypocrisy and that man's carnal nature will out. He says this, since worship of fleshly things produces pleasure, he said, there would then there would then be a temple of glorious indulgence. So what does he do? He starts the worldwide church of Satan. In 1966 is when he actually started that. In 1966, Time magazine ran a a cover page article saying God is dead. And about a month after they ran that, Anton LaVey started the, uh, the church of Satan, the worldwide church of Satan. So what happens when Jesus' rule intersects with the demonic. This is what happens. Jesus tells them to shut up and get out. And they have to do it. Now, I find it freaky. I find it freaky reading stuff. And I read the preface to the Satanic Bible this week. Some of you might think that's wrong to do, but I read it this week. You know what they're doing? What they're actually saying is they're actually saying, look, everyone's got these strong desires, fleshly desires for dodgy stuff. Let's make a religion out of it and let people go as hard as they want at that stuff. You know what? You know what the good news is? That Jesus is a king and he's come to bring his his rule to the demonic world, to the spiritual world. What blows my mind from this scripture that you can see up there which i read earlier where's the demon that jesus interacts with it's in a church how long was it in there for and why wasn't it stirred up why was it only stirred up by jesus you see we need to be about the advancement of Jesus' kingly rule. Which means we need to be in a place, folks. If you're a Christian, we need to be in a place where we're causing a little bit of trouble for these guys, these demons out there wanting to cause a mess of things. And what's a bit of a stinging rebuke in a sense is it looks like the demon has the clearest understanding of who Jesus is. And other people are missing it. But his response, shut up and get out. And the demon shuts up and gets out. And the whole way through, Mark's going to help you to see, we'll finish up in a minute, apologies for going a little bit over, but Mark's going to show you Every interaction that Jesus has with an evil spirit, and you see it in other interactions in the other Gospels, most of the time they're either getting kicked out, or they're all getting kicked out, but most of the time they're asking for mercy or asking him to be nice to them. (laughs) And so if anyone's going to beat up on anyone, Jesus is beating up on demons. Do we like that idea? Yeah, we do, because I'd like to see that. All right, And boys in the school here, when I say that, they get really excited because they say, look, on Judgment Day, you're just going to see Jesus beat up on a whole bunch of bad guys. And that's why you love watching movies, right? Because good guys beat up on the bad guys. And this guy's really going to be the good guy. And he's really going to know everything about the bad guys. And the bad guys are really going to deserve it. And so it's not like you're just going to be going, well, hang on, did they get a... Yes, they're going to get a fair trial. He's going to beat up on them and it's going to be fun to watch it. All right? I'm going to enjoy it. But in in the meantime, there's going to be moments where the demonic is actually going to affect humanity and it's going to affect you and it's going to affect this church. And when it starts affecting it, we we don't have the strength to tell any demon to do anything. But we ask Jesus to beat up on him on him for us. All right. That's kind of what it is. So if you're having some trouble and to be honest, there's been some things that have kind of happened this week. I've kind of gone, well, it's just a bit interesting that this gear is happening in a week when I'm talking about the demonic. But so, Jesus, can you just beat up on them? Now, that, I'm not an exorcist, right? But that would be a good place to start. In the book of Jude, it says Moses didn't even say, I rebuke you to uh, demonic influence. He actually said, the Lord rebuke you, which is really, Jesus, get them. 
<laughs> all right? Beat up on them. All right, here's what I'm going to finish. Jesus' rule has amazingly wonderful effects. Isn't this a beautiful quote from uh, the Lord of the Rings? The hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. You know what happens when Jesus brings his rule? Wholeness. Goodness. There's no peace in demonic influence. But the rule of Jesus brings peace. I was almost going to show you the uh, coronation ceremony of Aragorn at the end of... uh, the return of the king, because you know what he does? He stands up and he tells everyone, let's all work together for a time of peace. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want peace? And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring my rule and you guys are part of it. Bring my rule because when my rule comes, there's going to be peace. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb. The kid's going to be able to play with a matchbox car next to the hull of a viper and not get bitten. A lamb's going to be able to lie down right next to a lion and not get eaten. There's going to be peace that God's going to bring. Everything in your life begins to heal when you come under the rulership of Jesus. That's how it works. It begins to heal and it keeps healing. Because you know what? He's got healing hands. And he loves you. And when you come under his authority, it's not a bad thing because he's not corrupt. He's not going to crush you. He's not going to obliterate you. He's not going to take advantage of you. He wants you to come out of the kingdom of yourself and come under his rulership and you'll heal. That's how it works. And that's what we're doing at the church here. That's all we're doing at the church is let's get people under the rule of Jesus because if we can just get them under there, he's going to bring healing to areas in their life they didn't even know were hurt. Everything sad, this is a great quote of uh, Sally Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, everything sad is going to come untrue. Jesus' return at the end of time is going to usher in a time where there's no more fear. Imagine living in a world where there's no fear. And you've got a t-shirt with it written on. And it really means it. There's no suffering and there's no death. Just going to read this and we're done. Tim Keller says this. He says, This longing for a king is embedded in the legends of many cultures. And though the stories are all different, they have a similar theme. A true king will come back, slay the dragon, kiss us, wake us up out of our sleep of death, rescue us from imprisonment in the tower, lead us back into the dance. A true king will come back to put everything right and renew the entire world. The good news of the kingdom of God is this. Jesus is that true king.